Hello and welcome. Happy Sunday evening, wherever you might be listening. KCOU.FM in the Brown Box. So pleased to have you and so pleased to kick off this new project of mine. My name is Garrett Jones, sports director at KCOU 88.1 FM in Columbia, Missouri. Thrilled to kick off a little project that I'd like to call One of These Nights. An evening Sunday night talk show based particularly around sports history and music in the second hour. I do like to apologize for not being on the FM stream tonight in the blue box on KCU.FM. We're having some technical difficulties at our station today, but rest assured we are trying to get those issues fixed this afternoon. Hopefully this show from here on out will be in the blue box and on the FM stream for the rest of the semester and on to the next one. But for now, so happy you're a part of our evening tonight, wherever you might be listening on one of these nights and the one of these nights podcast, which will be up the next day following the recording of each and every episode. Since this is the first episode, I'd kind of like to lay some groundwork and frame what I want this to look like. What we're aiming to accomplish here at one of these nights, one man operation. Pretty simple and straightforward podcasting style one-man talk show and I plan to post it every single night but this is going to be an adventure and I'm thankful for my audience walking by my side because there's going to be a lot of figuring out as we go especially at the beginning but boiling it down I thought about this at least a little bit mostly this afternoon I want to break this show apart into what I call sports snippets. And those involve elements of short stories, sometimes long form, of the novice, the strange, the weird, the particular, and the noteworthy of every American major sport, and sometimes international. I want to center them around the four popular American sports, those being baseball, football, I'll throw hockey in that discussion as well, and basketball, specifically with the collegiate slant. I want to shoot for one of those every single time. So a strange story or a noteworthy happening from one of those five or six elements. And then the second thing that I want to do is I want to make a sports snippet relating to Mizzou. So I'm going to hone deep into my archives and knowledge of Mizzou basketball and football and get you the lowdown on some of its most strange oddities. Some of the strange apparitions in Mizzou sports history. Then towards the end of the show, I'll come back more to 2019, talk about relevant and current in the sporting world. And I'd like to finish off, this might not be a weekly setting, but I'm thinking I'll finish off this episode with an egg, uh, excuse me, an element that I like to call press on, which is taking a look at the sports media landscape, delving into some of the player-athlete relationships, into how sports media is changing, and a look at it from an outsider's view, looking to enter the field. The field. Get more into that in a little while. And then the second hour, I've got two hours on the show. I probably won't take it up any t- every time. I'm planning on just DJing for you, playing some classics, some Sunday night tunes. Not exactly sure what I want to do there. But that's the plan. I'm happy you're a part of it. 
This is one of these nights on KCU.FM. So thrilled to have you wherever you might be listening. Let's go ahead and dive right into it with our first sports snippet. In this past week in the sporting universe, we had an anniversary and didn't have anything to do with the off-court affairs of an athlete, coach, or manager. Didn't have anything to do with a championship trophy being hoisted. In fact, quite the opposite. It didn't have anything to do with a single-game accomplishment, at least not from a player. But it set records, all right. It was one of the most infamous games in Major League Baseball history. It took place on August 22, 2007, in Baltimore, Maryland, at Camden Yards. Some of you might be picking up on what I'm laying down to this point. Indeed, I'm talking about Rangers 30, Orioles 3. The biggest blowout in Major League Baseball history. We just celebrated the anniversary of it last week. You heard me correctly. The Texas Rangers beat the Baltimore Orioles 30-3, a 27-run margin at Camden Yards on August 27, 2007. There is so much to uncover in this game, but we'll just dive right into it from the beginning. Texas actually found itself trailing in this game, started by Casey Gabbard, a lefty for the Rangers at that point, opposite Daniel Cabrera, who threw the first three through three masterful frames. The Orioles actually led this game, if you can believe that, three to nothing after three. Things were going well for Baltimore at home. A little bit of background on these teams, however. They were both having seasons to forget. The Rangers entered 54-70 and 70 into this contest on a Wednesday afternoon. Baltimore entered at 58-65. and 65. The Rangers had recently traded away franchise star and slugger Mark Teixeira to the Atlanta Braves for a bevy of prospects that ended up being Elvis Andrews and one, play, one player that we'll focus in here particularly. The Orioles were in the thick of the wild card race for most of the year, but actually tapered off, ended up firing their manager in June. And this was the technical debut for manager Dave Tremblay. The franchise decided to remove his interim tag and make him the full-time manager earlier on this Wednesday afternoon. And if you can believe it, this was actually the second game of a doubleheader. There was a washout on the Monday before this game. And that forced these two teams to play too. I beg your pardon, that was actually the first game. So if you can believe it, after a 30-3 to loss, the Baltimore Orioles had to pick everything back up and play again in the same day. But I don't want to jump the gun too much. I want to start to get right into it with some highlights. So where we're at in this game, Baltimore leading 3 to nothing. The Rangers add a couple runs and tie the game at 3 in the top of the fourth inning. Jared Saltalamacchio, one of those pieces that the Rangers acquired in that mark to share a trade. And, fun fact, tied for the MLB record with the longest last name with 14 letters. Is at the dish. There's a base hit. Bird will score. Bots being sent to the plate. Patterson's throw will be cut off by Kevin Millar. And the Rangers back in a two-run single by Salta Lamacchia. 2-0 on Vasco. You heard the call there on MASN in Baltimore. So Jared Saltalamacchia, base knock, brings in two runs. Interestingly, Ramon Vasquez, 
the number eight hitter in the Texas order. Comes up to the plate a little after that. Salta Lamakia and Vasquez were the eight, nine hitters in this Texas order on this night. Here's Ramon Vasquez on his first plate appearance of the evening. Vasquez, deep to right field, back it goes, and that ball is gone. A three-run home run for Ramon Vasquez, and the Rangers take the lead. That put the Rangers up 5-3. to three. Fun fact, in an interview later with Sports Illustrated, years later in 2011, he told SI that his 11-year-old son, Nomar, came to him confused one day, said, told his dad that he found a video of his dad playing in this game. He said he showed it to one of his buddies at school and showed him hitting that home run. But he says his friend didn't believe that it was his dad. Ramon Vazquez played eight years of, as a utility infielder for six teams in the major leagues, came up for a battered Texas team and played third base and shortstop in this game. That was his first home run in this game, if that's any indication. A journeyman made it 5-3 to three Texas, a lead they would not relinquish. 6-3 to three in the sixth inning, then the Rangers really start to make their hold on this game. Marlon Bird comes up to the dish with the bases loaded in the sixth. High fly ball, deep left field. That ball's going to go. Way back for Bird. It's a grand slam. Once again, the call on MASN in Baltimore. 10 nothing Rangers at this point. 10-3 Rangers, I should say. 83 mile per hour gone, still off Cabrera. That made it 10-3 Texas with one out in the sixth. Marlon Bird, the first grand slam of the season for him. The Rangers would add six more runs, if you can believe it, in the eighth inning. That would set the stage for Texas to be up 16-3 in the eighth inning. Most teams would just take their foot off the gas, but this Rangers team had a lot to prove. I mentioned there was so much shuffling in the lineup. These Rangers players were essentially playing an extended spring training game. First baseman Jason Botts later told Sports Illustrated that's how it felt. And he says he thinks that's why the runs kept tallying and tallying and tallying. Either way, Hank Blaylock, a star prospect at the time for the Texas Rangers, was out on the disabled list in this game. So the team called up Travis Metcalf, a career minor leaguer who played parts of two seasons in 2007 to 2008 with the Rangers, comes up to the dish with the bases loaded once again. His team already up 16-3. to This is what he does. High fly ball to left field, and that ball is going to go. The second grand slam in the game for Texas, and the Rangers now are just laying it on. Laying it on indeed. That made it 20-3. to The Rangers put up 20 runs for the first time in over a decade. Travis Metcalf's only at-bat in that game was a grand slam, the only of his career. That put the Rangers up 20 to nothing. And an interesting little moment in this broadcast later on in the eighth inning. Jared Saltelomachia comes up in the eighth inning with a chance to do even more damage. Good night for an iPod. High fly ball to right field. Back it goes. It is gone. A three-run home run for Salta La Machia. You heard the mispronunciation there on the Orioles broadcast of Salta La Machia. That's pretty funny because this was one of his first ever games. 
in his rookie season in 2007. The Rangers playing a lot of rookies at this point. Salto Lamaki had recently acquired from the Rangers at this point. That was a three-run home run, his second of the game to put the Rangers up 24-3 to at this point over Baltimore. This game is just a total onslaught at this point. Normally, as I mentioned, teams would take their foot off the gas, but the Rangers had no plans to do that. That was the seventh RBI of the game for Jared Salta-Lamakia. And I don't know if you caught it at 420 in this, at the 420 mark in this YouTube video. You can hear the Orioles' color commentator. Good night for an iPod. I fly. This would be a good night for an iPod. Clearly, it was remarking over somebody they must have focused in on the stands. I find that hilarious. This was right around the birth of the iPod in 2007. It just dates this, and it's so endearing about this game that it's so uninteresting and such a strange spectacle that they're honing in on people on their iPods. And you know what the funny thing is? When you take a look around Camden Yards, I should say, this game looks better attended than Orioles games I've seen highlights of in 2019. Baltimore's obviously the worst team in the AL East. They actually were just eliminated from the playoffs last week. One of the worst teams in baseball. But their fans stuck around for this game. They might have realized that they were witnessing something historical. The Rangers would keep on pouring it on. They would add a total of six in the ninth, culminating with this historic moment. Right field and deep. And it's gone. A three-run home run for Vasquez. Texas has put 30 runs on the board. You heard it there. 30 runs on the board. The Rangers led 30-3 to at that point. Ramon Vasquez with his second home run in the game. That was one of only two in his career. He went four of six on the night. He and Jared Saltalamacchia, the eight, nine batters in the Texas order, combined to go eight for 12 with a total of 14 Runs batted in. The Rangers led off first baseman Frank Catalanato. Ian Kinsler batted second. Michael Young batted third. Marlon Byrd batted fourth. He had the grand slam in this game. Jason Botts was out of the league by the next year. He batted fifth. Nelson Cruz actually still in the league, still playing really well. Batted sixth and played right field. David Murphy now on the Rangers broadcast crew. He batted seventh. Sultanamaki eighth. And Vasquez ninth. A couple other little tidbits in this game. All 10 players that Texas sent to the plate had at least one hit and one run scored. Five different Rangers had at least three hits, and as a team, they hit 509 and collected 29 hits in total. Veteran catcher, veteran and catcher, excuse me, Jason or Jared Sultanamaki each homer twice. The Orioles relievers gave up 25 runs in the span of four innings. An absolute disaster out of the bullpen for the Orioles. And it was the first game of a doubleheader. So the Orioles, as I mentioned, had to pick it all up and come back out there for game two. They would go on to lose 9-7. to seven, So outscored in two games of a doubleheader on August 22nd, 2017, 39-10. An absolute massacre. It is the most lopsided win in Major League Baseball history by a margin of 27 runs. The Texas Rangers victorious on that night in Baltimore. All kinds of famous pictures surfaced from this game, but a lot of people had not heard of it. The Rangers ended up finishing 19-17 and 17 on the year. They still finished last in the American League West. The Orioles stumbled down the stretch. This sent both teams on a course of rebuilding that, frankly, they didn't recover from until the early 2010s. It's one of the highest-scoring games in Major League Baseball history. The Chicago Colts beat the Louisville Colonels, I should say, 36-7 to in 1897. Over 110 years later, 
the Texas Rangers put up 30 on the Baltimore Orioles. The funniest note in this game, Casey Gabbard got the start for Texas. He went pretty far deep into this game. He went six innings, giving up three runs, three strikeouts. Wes Littleton, a reliever who played very briefly in Major League Baseball, came on for the seventh, eighth, and ninth innings. He finished three frames completely clean, I should say, and recorded a save. You heard me right. West Littleton got a save with a 27-run lead. That's a good point to end on that little snippet. There is the first sports snippet in the history of one of these nights. Still got plenty to come on the show this evening, though. We hope you'll be a part of it. One of these nights on KCU 88.1 FM. We will be right back. Welcome back. One of these nights on KCU, the debut episode continues to roll on. Garrett Jones here in our KCU Sports Studio, Studio C, in the basement of the Missouri Student Center here on campus at the University of Missouri. Thank you so much for joining us on a Sunday night if you're listening live and if you're listening later, wherever you are on the One of These Nights podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in and supporting Student Radio. We just talked about the atrocity that really was a 30 to 3 baseball game in which the Texas Rangers stomped the Baltimore Orioles back on August 22nd 2017 20 excuse me 2007 that was fun to delve into but there's something else that's been on my mind as college football season enters through the back door and baseball starts to say a toodaloo to those whose teams like mine are well out of contention college football kicked off on Saturday in case you missed it I'll get into a little bit of my thoughts and reaction from both Florida and Miami and Arizona and Hawaii, which I took time out of my day to watch both games yesterday. They were both very entertaining. A good way to start the 2019 college football season. Something I'm wondering, though, as Missouri kicks off on Saturday against the Wyoming Cowboys in Laramie, and for those unfamiliar with the situation, you heard that right, Missouri is traveling to face the Wyoming Cowboys at War Memorial Stadium on Saturday. You can hear it on KCU 88.1 FM, by the way. Grace and Rennie and Joey Miller on the call. Why is Missouri playing in Wyoming? That's a Mountain West school. That is a significant step down in competition for the Tigers. A team that faced Alabama and Tuscaloosa last year has to travel to Athens, Georgia. You can hear that game on KCU as well. But this is a team that has to play up to SEC competition every single year. You don't get a single break in your in-conference schedule. Why is Missouri taking such a significant step down in its non-conference play? I have a bit of an answer. 
Missouri scheduled Wyoming as part of a home-and-home agreement, and for those unfamiliar, that basically means that you agree for Wyoming to travel to Columbia, Missouri, which they did last year. Missouri stomped Wyoming 40-13 to last September at Faroe Field. And as part of your side of the deal, you agree to travel to play them on the road. Now, what often happens on teams at Mizzou's level, especially schools in the SEC, they will buy out those games and forego traveling altogether and search for a game to reschedule. But unfortunately for Missouri, a couple years in the doldrums, head coach Gary Pinkle retires, the football program takes a step back, 5-7 and seven in 2015, 4-8 and eight in 2016. Basketball program sets records for really complete atrocity in the 2016 to 17 season going eight and 24 saw a decline in revenue and actually the athletics department for the first time in decades operated in the red at a deficit because of that, that set Missouri and its financial department back significantly. And the tigers did not have the capital to buy out this contest. So Missouri will be traveling to Wyoming on Saturday, but that's a separate story. If you ask me, there is one marquee opponent that I think Missouri should pursue scheduling every single year. In fact, it's one of the closest schools in the Power Five conferences, those being the Pac-12, Big 12, Big 10, ACC, and SEC, that Missouri could possibly schedule. That's the school up north in Iowa City, the Iowa Hawkeyes, a Big Ten program firmly established under Kirk Ferentz. They've done some really good things at the Division One level. But... Friends, you will never see Missouri schedule Iowa. And there's a very particular reason. In fact, these teams have played just 13 times in their history, despite being located just 192 miles apart. The last time these two teams played was December 28, 2010, in the Insight Bowl. Iowa actually took that contest 27-24. to But prior to that, these two teams hadn't met since they crossed paths in Columbia on October 15th, 1910 in Columbia. Keep in mind, these schools, 192 miles apart, had completely avoided each other for a century. That game was 5 to nothing, Missouri. In the time between these two games, Iowa has scheduled opponents of the likes of Miami, Ohio twice. They've also played Wyoming. In 2016, Iowa made the unfortunate mistake of scheduling perennial FCS contender North Dakota State and lost that game at Kinnick Stadium. They also scheduled Illinois State of recent. Missouri has scheduled in the past five years South Dakota State, Eastern Michigan. They've traveled to UConn, and they're also traveling to Wyoming, as I mentioned. Yet they will never schedule each other and get what would be a premier Power 5 home and road contest. There's a very specific reason for this. This was very interesting to research. The Gazette had an article in 20, yeah, 2010 prior to that Insight Bowl matchup that I mentioned between Missouri and Iowa. This is the Iowa Gazette. It's an article from Mike Loss. Campuses, as I mentioned, just 102 miles apart, but they have bar none the worst college football rivalry Bar none, as the article says. When they did play, the games were 
really historically bad. As I mentioned, the last game was a 5 nothing win for Missouri. But in a dozen meetings between 1892 and 1910, Iowa was shut out four times and Missouri twice. The 1910 season for Iowa was really a doozy. They went 5-2, and two, but besides losing to Mizzou, they also fell to Northwestern. That score was 10-5. to five. Safeties were clearly more common back in 1910. But there was one particular reason in that game in Columbia why Iowa never wanted to come back. Coach Jess Hawley's Hawkeyes took just 19 varsity players to Columbia. Can you imagine in 2019 taking 19 players? These days, NCAA teams have more than 60 scholarship players, depending on where you're at. They often dress north of 50 and many more than that for home games. They took 19 varsity players to Columbia. Missouri announced it would not allow tackle Archie Alexander, who played for Iowa at the time. He was a black man, and Missouri said that he was not allowed to play that game. That didn't sit well with Iowa. They also said that Missouri treated them with unsportsmanlike conduct in that 1910 game. And so they decided never to come back. And that wound has never been repaired. These two schools refused to schedule each other. But very interestingly, this series probably should have ended the year before because as Loss chronicles in the, let's see, what the Daily Iowan, the Daily Iowan had a game recap the day after. This was part of the account of the game, and I quote, Missouri's kick for goal after a touchdown landed on the merry widow of a startled female, spe- female spectator, I should say, at the north end of the field. Loss did some research and learned that A Merry Widow is a woman's foundation garment, which is meant to smooth the waist and stomach area. So if that doesn't date the last time these two teams have met, I don't know what would. A startled female spectator getting nailed by an errant extra point attempt in Iowa City. That game was 13-12. to So when these two teams did play, they were lousy contests. And beef continues between these two schools. They haven't scheduled each other since. Again, that last time they played was 2010 in a bowl game. We will have to see if Missouri and Iowa ever are willing to make amends. Take a look at the progress that we made as a country and maybe schedule each other down the road. Either way, Iowa opens up this weekend against Miami, Ohio, and Missouri takes on Wyoming on Saturday on KCOU. That's all for that Mizzou Sports Snippet still to come. We will talk MLB Players Weekend, Week Zero College Football Outtakes, and we will have the first debut segment of Press On featuring Justin Verlander of the Houston Astros. This is one of these nights on KCOU.FM. Don't go anywhere.
Welcome back to our Student Center Studios, KCU.FM in the Brown Box. Garrett Jones, so pleased to join you on your Sunday evening. Hope you're staying dry in Columbia. We've had some rain throughout the past couple days. Second week of classes starting on campus for Missouri. Exciting time here in Columbia. First episode of One of These Nights on KCU.FM and the One of These Nights podcast well underway. Thank you so much for being a little part, big part actually, of my little project in my final year here at the University of Missouri. And we're here in our studios and I've got the Dodgers versus Yankees Sunday night baseball game on ESPN on one of our monitors in the studio. Such a classic matchup, really. The MLB, ESPN have been building this up all week long. Two of their premier franchises, the iconic NY cap, the legendary L.A. Dodger Blue. So much pageantry between both these teams. The Yankees are leading the game right now, 4-1. to one. This is actually the rubber match of that series, so a lot riding on this game. But there's one thing that has significantly tainted what should be a classic series, a rare regular season electric atmosphere in August at Dodger Stadium this weekend. And that is the uniforms. Have you seen these uniforms that these teams are wearing? A little bit of background. It's all part of the Players Weekend initiative that Major League Baseball is undertaking. This is a two-year-old initiative. But this year... They are far and away the worst designs, at least in my opinion, and that of many others, that the teams and leagues have put forward. And they have caused significant issues among players. If you don't know what I'm talking about, it's worth looking up. So basically what Major League Baseball implemented were all white uniforms for the home team. That includes if they have a color scheme in the uniform. So the numbering is white. The lettering across the chest is white. Caps and emblems are white. The pants are white. The shoes are white. Everything. Batting helmets are white. It is white on white. Every single road team wore black on black. Unless unless you're the Chicago White Sox who wore black at home. Which actually looked okay. For a team that has a significant black in their color scheme, like the White Sox do, it actually worked. But for about 29 other teams, it was a complete and total eyesore. Yahoo Sports had an interesting article about it today. Tim Brown, an MLB columnist, led into his story with this, and I quote, By the look of things Friday night at Dodger Stadium, the two best teams in baseball were the Backstreet Boys and the Jabberwockies. A crew of house painters and a call list for a Johnny Cash biopic. A staff meeting at a nuclear power plant and the cast from Cats. When D.J. LeMahieu of the Yankees led off for New York in the first inning, he looked like a trapped king on a chessboard. When A.J. Pollock led off for the Los Angeles Dodgers in the first inning, it looked like somebody dropped a tic-tac into a bowl of olives. When the Yankees loaded the bases in the fifth inning, it looked like a crossword puzzle. End quote. This is a great article. It's worth looking up on Yahoo Sports. But it gets into the background on why these teams are being forced to wear these jerseys. And they've significantly caused some problems. Major League Baseball is known for its classic uniforms. You think of the Boston Red Sox with the iconic home whites and no names on the back with the red numbering. The St. Louis Cardinals 
in my opinion, the best all-around jersey in baseball with the birds on the bat, the red and white look. San Francisco Giants, also some iconic uniforms. Detroit Tigers have never changed theirs in their franchise history. Chicago Cubs also have some really nice threads. This Players Weekend was made in part to unify the players, and it's worked for the most part. They've actually been really polite about it, but in Chicago, the Cubs staged a protest of sorts. Basically, what Major League Baseball mandated was that pitchers who were wearing the white uniforms had to wear a black cap instead of a white cap if their team was wearing the white uniforms so as not to confuse them with umpires who wear black caps on the field no matter what. But John Lester of the Cubs decided he didn't want to take part in that, and he actually decided to wear his normal blue Chicago Cubs cap on Friday against the Washington Nationals. And in solidarity, the Cubs' entire fielding unit decided to do the same. Aaron Boone, the Yankees manager, actually weighed in on the issue. He said, Dodgers-Yankees, I feel like it would be cool that this isn't the best, necessarily the best weekend for us to wear these uniforms. End quote. But there were significant problems with the Chicago Cubs in this issue. Joe Madden minced words very wisely on the issues particularly. I had an article pulled up. I'm going to try to find it here real quick. I, I apologize for that. But he, he minced words very wisely about these issues. He was not a fan of the uniforms at all. As I mentioned, Aaron Boone said that it didn't really feel like these jerseys were right for this weekend. Cody Bellinger of the Dodgers had probably the funniest comment of the weekend. He said, I'm off the helmets, quote, they look like a darn Q-tip. Pretty funny with the Dodger blue to think about that. But yeah, they're, they're, both teams are wearing these uniforms, the Yankees in the all-black tops, black New York numbering, black pants, which I just, I just think anything besides white and gray in a baseball uniform is just a terrible look. It just doesn't work. Think back to the Pirates jerseys with the mustard yellow pants. It just doesn't work. I found the Joe Madden quote, if you're interested, in case you don't know, the Chicago Cubs manager. Per the Athletics, Patrick Mooney said, I just want to know who thought this was a good idea. And he's got a point. Every team is forced to wear these uniforms this weekend. All 30 teams, even though teams, as I mentioned, have tried to find disparities between them. Chicago actually heard from Major League Baseball after they decided to stage the protest of sorts, they were not allowed to wear their normal caps. And they heard from Major League Baseball about it afterward. Once again, an update on that game. The Yankees leading 4-1. to Aroldis Chapman, New York's closer, warming up to come into the game. It kind of looks like, if you look at it from a distance right now, on the ESPN broadcast, it looks like the Dodger pitcher, and I can't even see who it is because I can't read the uniform on his back, which is all white. It's so hard to differentiate between the numbers. I highly doubt you will ever see these jerseys again in Major League Baseball. Some of them look good on the tops, like the Yankees' black lettering on black tops actually looks okay, but when you bring it all together with the black batting helmet, the black lettering, the black pants, it just it's not a good look. Not in the slightest. 
and what could be a classic series in L.A., possibly even a World Series preview, is going to be marred by this image for many Major League Baseball fans to come. You could spend a lot of time on that issue. I'm personally not going to. I it, it was it was a subject of conversation for many baseball fans this weekend, though. Hopefully this is the last we'll see of the players' weekend uniforms. They were meant to unify players, and the, the only cool part, really, was that they allowed them to put whatever they wanted on the back of their jerseys. So if they had a nickname or any kind of special slogan or saying they wanted on the back of their uniforms, they could put them on there. But you can't even read what the players put. The players have been very polite, by and large, with the exception of Joe Madden speaking out, obviously. But these jerseys clearly were not for fans' weekends. And obviously, at the root of every single endeavor in Major League Baseball, it's to put money in the pockets of owners and sell uniforms of the like. I don't know. I didn't think it was a great move. Anyway, moving on. Like I said, I wanted to stay current with some issues that are going on in sports right now. And not necessarily issues, but things that are happening in sports this weekend. College football is back. You heard it right. Week zero. By the way, it's really cool that week zero has turned into a significant thing for college football. In the past, like last year, we saw Colorado State take on Hawaii. Hawaii is typically the team that gets slated in these spots simply because it's so hard to travel between schools. So they need an extra week to get ahead, especially for the opponents that they played. They actually did play in week one, excuse me, week zero last night against Arizona Wild, against the Arizona Wildcats, I should say. We'll get into that game in a minute. But the big game on the marquee on a night of college football was Florida and Miami. This game was played in Orlando, Florida, Camping World Stadium, billed as the Camping World kickoff. This game weighs heavily for Missouri. The Tigers have a chance to win the SEC East this year, obviously banned from postseason play as it stands right now due to NCAA sanctions, but there's a feeling that Missouri could hear relatively soon on that issue. So they'll be monitoring teams like Florida, teams like Georgia, sneaky teams like Tennessee and South Carolina to get a grip on where their footing might be in the division. And non-conference games like this for Florida, it's a rivalry renewed. These two teams hadn't played since 2013. It was a great game. It was extremely sloppy, but it was great. These two teams looked like they hadn't played in eight months. Jaron Williams, a lot made about the debut of the Miami redshirt freshman quarterback. Only one game of experience last year against Savannah State. And he comes in against Florida and holds his own. 24-20, the Gators ended up victorious, but boy, it didn't come easy. In fact, Miami actually led at the half 13-7. Notable plays included Florida on its second drive, converting a fake punt in which punter Tommy Townsend took the ball and ran for a first down in Gator territory. That was a huge momentum shift, and it allowed Florida to set up a 66-yard touchdown. How good. My goodness, how good is Kadarius Tony? Not a huge game statistically last night, but when you see this 66-yard run off the pitching catch from Felipe Franks, you were impressed. That was really the tone setter of the evening. That put Florida up. Miami would fight 
through, but Florida absolutely dominated the second half, outscoring the Hurricanes 17-7. The Gators actually had a chance to put the game away with the ball, under five minutes left in the fourth. Felipe Franks had two turnovers on the day. He threw two interceptions, actually three, lost a fumble as well. Miami had a chance, but simply put, the offensive line was a revolving door. Jeremy Williams was sacked multiple times. The Hurricanes failed to convert a fourth down in the final two minutes. Florida took over on downs, and a late touchdown was enough to seal the win for the Gators. I don't really think this game gives an accurate picture of what Florida is going to be this season. All around, this is a team with a lot of questions. Really kind of enigmatic to start the season. But I'll be curious to see what they move forward with as a result. They get the bye next week. Then they get to play UT Martin at home. So an FCS opponent. So that'll be a good benchmark for the Gators to see at least where they're at. I don't really think this game was that. I th- I think routinely Miami is overrated coming into the season. I thought a lot of people were giving them too much credit that they could hang in the game with the number eight team in the nation as an unranked school, not receiving votes. I still think Miami under first-year head coach Manny Diaz is a long way to go before they're contending in the ACC and standing up to teams like Clemson, really the only front-runner in the ACC, the heavy, unanimous favorite to win that conference. I think it could happen. Miami obviously is a signature job. But I don't really think that this game was a benchmark for them either. They could still contend in the Coastal. But we'll just have to see. So week zero, good to see a game of that caliber. So much attention on that contest last night. It was televised on ESPN. As I mentioned, a neutral site game in the state of Florida. A rivalry renewed. Great atmosphere overall. But for my money... The best game of the night last night was Arizona and Hawaii. This game was worth staying up till 134, folks. If you don't like defense, if you like high-flying offenses, this was the game for you. 45-38, Hawaii victorious over a Pac-12 school at Aloha Stadium. A strange contest here. Khalil Tate versus Cole McDonald, two of the highest-flying quarterbacks in the FBS. McDonald, 36 touchdowns a year ago, only 10 interceptions. He threw four first-half interceptions in this game. Now, to be fair, he balanced it out with four touchdowns, but he was actually pulled late in the game for Chevin Cordero. If you might recognize that name, well, you'd be a significant college football fan if you did. He was the backup to Tua Tungavailoa at St. Louis High School on the island of Oahu. Made his debut, at least a season debut, for Hawaii in this game. Leads the team to victory. Helps them outplay Arizona down the stretch. But it did not come easy. Arizona actually stormed all the way back from 14 points down in the third quarter. Tied the game at 35. Hawaii capitalized off the turnover. Arizona actually was in a position to take the lead in the tie ball game. But Khalil Tate, a former Heisman contender, was picked off. And Hawaii ran it back all the way down to the Arizona 20 and set up a go-ahead touchdown. They would add on a field goal and take a 45-35 lead. Arizona eventually came back down and scored to keep things interesting. 
And Khalil Tate for Arizona actually had a chance to win the game. This is an Arizona team that has marginal expectations in the Pac-12 under second-year head coach Kevin Sumlin. And boy, if you remotely follow Texas A&M football, how much is this game resemblant of Kevin Sumlin's initial games when he was leading the way for Texas A&M? Just a defensive atrocity. 45 points allowed to a Mountain West school. There was no consistency or continuity in the defensive schemes. It seemed like Texas... Wow, I'm already mixing them up. It seemed like Arizona was mixing up its looks all night long. And they simply had no answer for either quarterback that Hawaii threw them. We'll go ahead and play the last second. Great call by Carter Blackburn, a friend of KCOU, on CBS Sports last night. We'll go ahead and let you listen to the final play. Everybody at the table is all in. Tate. They're going to take their shot here. Five seconds. He can go. He can go. He can do this. He's going to have to leave. Khalil Tate had a chance, had the game in his hands. Arizona had a first and 10 from the Hawaii 31-yard line. 10 seconds left on the game clock, a chance for glory. And Khalil Tate decides to scramble. He had a look, to be fair. Hawaii showed blitz. They rushed four passers at him, pass rushers, I should say, at him. Khalil Tate's one of the fastest players in college football. He was able to scramble and evade at least the initial pursuers had nothing but open field for about 20 yards and then was stopped short at the one-yard line as time expired. He took a chance, and it almost paid off. That would have set us up for overtime at what was really a classic game. But instead, Arizona, a Pac-12 school, starts its season out 0-1 with a loss at the hand of the Mountain West Hawaii Warriors. Coming up, we will finish off the debut episode of one of these nights on KCU.fm with an episode, or excuse me, a segment of this episode I like to call Press On, where I take a look at ongoing issues in sports media. Don't go anywhere. We'll finish off the show right after this. Welcome back to one of these nights in the One of These Nights podcast on KCU 88.1 FM. Garrett Jones, a privilege to have you along for this evening's broadcast. A Sunday night in Columbia, Missouri. Programming note, this show will normally be on KCOU 88.1 FM and KCOU in the Blue Box. As I mentioned earlier, we were having some technical issues this afternoon at our Student Center studio. We'll hope to get those sorted out by the time the next episode airs in a couple weeks. We'll break for Labor Day. Very fortunate to be able to get to go, be going home back to Texas. So looking forward to that opportunity. But we'll be back with another show, the second episode of this show on September 8th. But for now, let's go ahead and finish off the first one, shall we? This is a segment I'd like to call Press On. This is such an important time in sports media here in 2019. So much is changing far around us and beyond the control of sports journalists. 
And it's an interesting time to stop and evaluate significant issues between player and press. Last Wednesday, we had a very interesting situation. Justin Verlander of the Houston Astros took a historical loss to Major League Baseball's worst team, the Detroit Tigers, at Minute Maid Park in Houston. Afterwards, significantly frustrated. This was by betting lines. I'm not a betting man myself, but in case you are, this was by betting lines one of the most significant upsets in Major League Baseball history with the Tigers facing off against almost unanimous World Series favorite Houston at this point. Detroit actually won this game 2-1 to one with Verlander pitching that night. And Verlander, quite possibly the best pitcher in Detroit Tiger history, decided not to talk with reporter Anthony Fenich on Wednesday night. Now, in case you don't know, the Baseball Writers of Association of Major League Baseball's collecting bargaining agreement, excuse, <laughs> collective bargaining agreement, I should say, have a deal in place to where players can turn down any press interviews after the game or talk to every single press credential member in clubhouse situations in Major League Baseball. They cannot pick and choose who they want to talk to and who they don't. Justin Verlander alerted Houston staff that he did not want to speak with Detroit Free Press writer Anthony Fenich on Wednesday night. In fact, he asked that Astro Security bar him from entering the clubhouse at Minden Maid Park. This violates league rules, but the Astros allowed it. The Astros know this, and it still happened. Verlander's camp left a message at the Detroit Free Press sports desk on Wednesday afternoon. Editor of the Detroit Free Press, Chris Thomas, said that he regrettably did not hear the voicemail until then, but he said his position still would not have changed. It's Verlander's obligation to speak with the whole media or none of them. These two have had issues in the past when Justin Verlander at Detroit said that he was having a conversation with fellow Tigers great Al Kaline discussing the solar eclipse in 2017. Anthony Finich reportedly butted in in the conversation. Verlander claims the conversation was private. Really, it's, it's all semantics. But the point is, Justin Verlander apologized in a tweet after the game. He declined. He says, quote, I declined to speak with the Detroit Free Press rep last night because of his unethical behavior in the past. I reached out to the Free Press multiple times before the game to notify them why and give them an opportunity to have someone else there. Ironically, they did not answer. Once again, context, Chris Thomas said he did not receive the voicemail to the next day. Verlander continues, quote, although I tried to avoid this situation altogether, I've still reached out to the free press multiple times today with no response. They're not interested in my side of the story. See, that's where the issue comes about. Because Verlander threw that dagger that they're not interested in his side of the story when the Astros were clearly out of line in allowing this to take place. The situation has since been revolved. The Astros have been reprimanded and Verlander since apologized to the incident, as I mentioned, but there have been problems with Anthony Fennich in the past. And this situation is interesting because no matter which way you're coming from, there's no good way to solve it, but rules are rules. And it was interesting to see the response to this situation on Wednesday night. Chris Thomas adds in an article in the Detroit Free Press why this is wrong. Quote, there's nothing 
in the MLB collective bargaining agreement that would force Verlander to speak to Finch. The press understands that. And we understand that some stories and some comments lead to contention and can affect one-on-one access. But group access can't be prejudicial. And it includes a photo that Finch sent to the Detroit Free Press of security guards barring him from entering the Houston clubhouse. He also adds that Finch wasn't asking for a one-on-one interview. He was simply asking to be part of the entire media scene. Interesting situation there. It'll be curious to see how this affects media relations moving forward. It seems like it was a bit of a nuanced situation, but it seemed like a very specialty one on a separate and unrelated note because it seemed like Justin Verlander didn't have a problem with the overall media. It seemed like it was just one reporter of the Detroit Free Press. So that's where we'll end this week's episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Shout out to the ones I know I have listening. Sarah and Michelle Hicks, my dad, John Jones, my biggest supporter. I'm thankful that you guys tuned into this first show. I enjoy having you along my ride. I hope you enjoyed listening tonight, wherever you might be listening on KCU.fm. Join us in a couple weeks for one of these nights on September 8th. We'll have lots of college football to talk about you. We'll dig into sports snippets, both Mizzou and professional sports, and we'll see where this thing goes. But for now, signing off on a Sunday night. My name is Garrett Jones. Hope you enjoy your evening, and thank you again for tuning in.